0: I'm Ann Sims, Medical Science Liaison with Boston Heart Diagnostics. Welcome to our podcast, Heart Matters. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Dharmesh Patel, who is part of Stern Cardiovascular in South Haven, Mississippi. Originally from London, Dr. Patel received his medical degree from the prestigious Guy's and King's Medical College in London, eventually completing his residency at the University of Virginia and a cardiology fellowship at Penn State University. Dr. Patel holds board certifications in cardiovascular disease, nuclear cardiology, and adult cardiac echocardiography. He is also trained in interpreting CT angiography and is a specialist in clinical hypertension. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Lipidology and past president of the American Heart Association Memphis Chapter. Welcome, Dr. Patel. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Patel, and we are going to talk about the advantage of looking at a lipoprotein particles versus just measuring the cholesterol or the lipids within those lipoprotein particles. So, to start us off, what is an apolipoprotein-B containing particle or an LTL particle? And is there advantage to measuring ApoB or LVLP and not just that LVLC that we see in the basic lipid panel? Thank
1: you, Anne. That's a real nice start to this conversation. And, you know, what actually is ApoB? Now, ApoB is a apo lipoprotein which is connected to lipoproteins. And what are lipoproteins? Well, those are those compounds that we know about with a phospholipid and the cholesterol inside ester. And what we know is that ApoB is the protein that's attached to the outer layer of the particle by means of a lipophilic domain. And that's kind of very technical, but essentially the ApoB is a protein. It's a non-exchangeable apolipoprotein. And remember this very key point. One molecule of ApoB is, per non-HDL particle. Now, there are different kinds of ApoB, of course. There's the ApoB48, which is made in the intestine, associated with chylomicrons and chylomicron remnants, and then the one that we're more familiar with is the ApoB100, again an lipoprotein, which is produced in the liver, associated with BLDL, BLDL remnants, LDL, and lipoprotein A. So, in summary, ApoB is an lipoprotein connected to every single atherogenic particle. And then the question you said next is, well, is that the same or what are the advantages of measuring that compared to LDL cholesterol? Now, remember one thing. When you talk about lipoproteins because that is the actual atherogenic particle in the body, we classically have talked about LDL concentration, predominantly due to studies. But you have to understand LDL is not the only atherogenic particle in the body. You have to appreciate there are other atherogenic particles in the body like, for example, IDL, VLDL. Lipoprotein, literally, which is the most atherogenic of all the lipoproteins. Chylomycin remnants. And the point being, you don't take those other atherogenic particles into account when you're talking about cholesterol and really atherogenic potential. So the whole point is an ApoB, ApoLipoprotein is connected to every single atherogenic particle that's in the body. So in summary, to answer your question, apolipoprotein B is a protein connected to every single atherogenic particle, not just the LDL concentration, and it has the advantage over LDL concentration in terms of the fact you truly get a number of actual particles which are atherogenic, whereas LDL concentration is just one subset of all the atherogenic particles circulating in the body.
0: What a great explanation, Dr. Mattel. So, I know I have been personally looking at LDL particle levels or ApoB levels since 2004. So, this is not a new concept. What well-designed trials have supported the use of ApoB and is ApoB in any of our guidelines?
1: This is a loaded question because I have to say, you know, I think that... Cholesterol has come a long way in the last 10 to 15 years, and I really do think there is a place for ApoB. I have to say, certainly, when I was learning about lipids, Dr. Cromwell, Dr. Snyderman are people I have to pay respect to because they taught me a lot about this disease state and actual disease pathophysiology. So, the first question is do we have design trials that support the use of ApoB? Absolutely. We have many. Trials that have shown this, I can go on, but I'll give you an idea. Quebec study, Framingham trial, Quebec cardiovascular trial, women's heart study. These are all trials which have clearly shown ApoB use and the superiority of ApoB over LDL concentration. And I don't want to stop there. You know, when you talk about risk of atherogenesis, we think that non-HDL is a better predictor than LDL concentration. And I'll go further and say there are many trials that show that APO-B is a better predictor than non-HDL-C at predicting cardiovascular events. And then your next question is, well, how did these recommendations come about? Why, are, why is APO-B maybe not the first and ultimate test for aphogenic potential in the United States. And you have to remember the data comes from the emerging risk collaboration trials, which use a lot of different studies. And, you know, there is some limitations on using the emerging risk uh, factor collaborations in terms of the data, the way the APOB was measured, the trials in terms of, in terms of someone not even published. So there are some weaknesses in saying that ApoB is the same as non-HDL-C. Now, if you look at this, if you truly look at data, for example, from 2011, when you look at Snyderman's papers, and you look at non-HDL versus ApoB, non-HDL is certainly superior to LDL concentration, 300,000 extra lives saved. But if you look at ApoB, actually 500,000 extra lives were saved. So what I'm trying to say is, We have used emerging risk collaboration as some of our resources for understanding and saying why LDL concentration is great. But I will also say that there are some weaknesses too, because if you look at the data from emerging risk collaborations, actually at the end of the day, total cholesterol is the same as LDL concentration, which is the same as non-HDL, which is the same as apoB. So you could argue. Why would you even mention not HDL in the emerging risk collaboration? You would just say total cholesterol. So, with that being said, I do think there are many trials that have looked at ApoB, b And I'll be honest with you, most countries in the world except for the USA certainly use ApoB, b And there definitely is major guidelines that support this. I'd like to start by talking about the National Lipid Association, which, of course, I'm... Um, affiliated with, and I want to make it the point that the APOB is an optional secondary lipid target. One thing I do like about APOB is, as you all know, in clinical practice, you do not need to have a fasting blood level to measure APOB. In fact, the APOB can be measured whilst you are not fasting. And certainly, it can also be considered by the guidelines in the NLA especially once they've got to go you could consider measuring the apob. Now the European Society of Cardiology it has a class 2a indication in terms of apob is an alternative risk marker especially and this is very key especially the patients that have combined hyperlipidemia diabetes metabolic syndrome and chronic kidney disease What interests me here is what percentage of America truly has metabolic syndrome? It's a very high proportion, probably around 79 million people. And that comes back to the whole thing about particle excess. The fact that the LDL concentration in patients who are diabetic or pre-diabetic may look normal, But we all appreciate that up to 30 to 70% of these patients have particle excess, i.e. they have a lot higher number of aphogenic particles wandering around, even though quote unquote their LDL concentration is normal. And certainly there are other guidelines that I could talk about. Of course, we cannot forget the new ACC guidelines 2018. Where they talked about enhancing risk factors, where you get someone to go, let's say, but there are other things that you must consider. And in pertinence to the ApoB, they talked about the enhancing risk factor of someone that had an ApoB greater than 130. One must appreciate the enhancing risk factors are certainly something that I want to just mention because they just came out. We are treating patients, we're not treating populations. And this is the reason why, even in The ACC 2018 guidelines in November, they talk about risk factors such as chronic inflammatory disease states like lupus, psoriasis, chronic kidney disease, metabolic syndrome. How many patients have metabolic syndrome? Patients who have an LPA little A of greater than 50, a C-reactive protein of greater than 2, a patient who has an ABI less than 0.9. The patient has an LDL greater than 160. The patient has a family history of heart disease. Now, remember, all these factors I'm telling you are not included in the ACC cardiovascular risk calculation. So these are all things that you can use adjunctively to help determine a patient that may need further risk stratification or prevention above and beyond the COVID guidelines. A calcium score is in that guideline. The fact that HIV disease is in the guideline. The fact that A female who may have had, let's say, radiation to the left breast is also part of the guidelines in terms of enhancing risk factors. And last but not least, patients of Asian descent. Asian Indians are a subset of a very high increased risk of cardiovascular disease. states. In fact, they're the highest risk ethnicity. So the point I'm trying to make is even the ACC guidelines in 2018 have talked about APOB and used it as probably a secondary target in therapy to get people to go. Now, last but not least, I think the guidelines, which are probably the most aggressive, actually, funnily enough, I think, are the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology in 2017. They actually talked about patients who were, quote, extreme risk. Patients who had progressive cardiovascular disease whose LDLs were less than 70. Patients, for example, who had... Um, acute chronic syndrome has further events despite having an LDL 70, their guidelines talk about having an LDL less than 55, a non-HDL less than 80, and specifically an ApoB less than 70. There are other cases where you want to get the ApoB less than 70 patients with established cardiovascular disease, patients with grade 3 or 4, grade 3 chronic kidney disease, and heterozygous familial And the third group in the ACE 2017 guidelines were patients who had a history of premature cardiovascular disease, for example, a male less than 55 and a female less than 65. So the point I'm trying to make here is even the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology has APOB in their guidelines. Extreme risk patients, APOB less than 70. Very high risk patients, APOB less than 80. So it's Seeing in the guidelines, and I want to be fair and balanced, as I mentioned, uh, in the, some of the guidelines, like the European guidelines, that's a class 2A indication, but more importantly, it's an optional secondary lipid target. And as I mentioned before, which patients, for example, have particle excess, metabolic syndrome, diabetic patients, combined hyperlipidemia, chronic kidney disease. But my challenge or question to everybody who's listening is what percentage of patients do we see... Diabetes or metabolic syndrome or combined dyslipidemia a lot. So to me, I do think there is certainly some good guidance in quote getting patients to go, but once they are at goal, what do you do at that point thereafter? And I will just talk about what I do in my clinical practice. In my clinical practice, if someone's had established cardiovascular disease, let's just say I'll use the guidelines and put them on high-dose-intensity statin therapy, and then I will consider at some point in these patients doing some other testing, like I may do an APOB or inflammatory testing, since I do think in certain situations, I do think it can add additional predictive information and also tell us where we are missing this, quote, residual risk, because the fact of the matter is despite, quote, optimal standard of care, 36% of males have another event or die after the first MI within five years, and 47% of females die or have another MI after their first MI within five years. So there is this thing called residual risk. And I think that the guidelines are good, but they are not the holy grail. We have to tackle secondary prevention, especially in that situation.
0: Thank you, Dr. McKell. You've done a great job making the case for practitioners to look past that basic lipid panel and look past that allele cholesterol. So part of the the particle issue is, is, of course, particle number, atherogenic particle number, but there's also another side to particle number, and that's particle size. Can you comment to the risk um, portrayed by having small LDL particles or an elevated small dense LDL cholesterol value?
1: Yes, we certainly have data to show that patients who have small dense LDL have a certainly increased risk of cardiovascular events. In fact, there are some subsets in the MESA analysis which showed that patients who had small dense LDL that was a stronger predictor than A4B, which is quite interesting. Now, that was a specific study. But the point being that small, dense LDL certainly carries its own atherogenic risk. And, you know, there are other trials that I could uh, um, refer to. The Jupiter trial, for example, patients who had an elevated small LDL, those patients were predicted of cardiovascular events and all cause mortality in that subset. We can talk about other trials like the HATS trial, for example, where small-dense um showed that patients who had lowest levels of small-dense LDL had reduced rates of atherosclerosis progression. So, small-dense LDL, I think, has been shown to be reflective of increased atherogenic events. But the question that I think, Anne, is more important is, well, what could be potentially some of the reasons for this, and I think some of the reasons are very interesting. Uh, These are some of the proposed mechanisms, really, to explain the increased pathogenesis of the LDL. And they could be things like there is a low affinity for the LDL receptor. When something is small and sticky, it's facilitated entry into the arterial wall. Now remember, because it's small and sticky, it's got greater arterial retention because of increased binding to proteoglycans also, and more importantly, the thing that I think makes a lot of sense is there is a greater susceptibility of oxidation. So, you know, I do think that when you have small dense LDL, there's decreased binding to the LDL receptor, but there's definitely increased binding to the LDL receptor independent sites. And for this reason, there has been certainly a significant role in the LDL binding at the physiological LDL concentration. So, the bottom line is, small dense LDL is small, it's sticky, it can get through the arterial wall, it can cause oxidation, it has a greater preponderance to get through there and cause retention and binding to protoglycan. And yes, we do have studies such as Jupiter, such as HATS, which show us, even MESA for that matter, that show that small-end LDL can be prognostic and, in itself, is an independent risk factor for atherosclerosis and cardiovascular events.
0: Great. And just to reiterate, it's those patients with metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes, which display those small particles. So, that's... You know, we just have to get better at that. Um, So, thank you again, Dr. Dr. Kel. Um, any, Any last words to share with our audience? So, you know, and, yes, yeah,
1: there are some points I do want to make. Yes, first and foremost, you've got a great point about which patients do you think benefit from APOB. And I think it's very simple. The ones that combine hypoglycemia, diabetics, the huge, vast population of patients that have metabolic syndrome and chronic kidney disease, these are patients where you will see this concordance, i.e., the LDL concentration may look, quote, normal, but they definitely have particle excess. And this is the reason why the ApoB can be so much more useful and help us reduce cardiovascular events. And then your second point, well, another point I want to make is there are certain medicines that are very good at reducing LDL concentration, and there are certain medicines that are very good at reducing ApoB or LDLP. Let's see, the things that are good at reducing LDLC are statins, for example and xenomide can be considered in that subgroup too. But on the flip side, there are other medicines which are better at reducing APOB or particle number, let's say. And these are things like omega-3 fatty acids, fibrates, nicotinic acid. Even things like pioglitazone have been shown to reduce APOB quite a lot. So when we treat these patients, yes, I think the standard of care would say statins, and they would say possibly Zeria, depending on the patient. But you have to understand to further reduce the APOB, i.e. the particle excess, you may need to consider the other therapies that I have discussed. And remember, the patient that's forgot about so much is the patient that has metabolic syndrome. The one whose A1C may be, let's say, 6.1, where you already know greater than 50% of the beta islet cells are not functioning we know that some of these patients may do better from trials like the diabetes prevention study, et cetera. They may do better with initiation of metformin or even pioglitazone, depending on which patient you're talking about. So I do think there is room to go in terms of further reducing the residual risk in these patients where even LVL is to go. And this is the exact reason why we see up to 36% of men and 47% of women continue to have cardiac events after their first MI because we are not truly getting to the residual risk.
0: And that's too high. One... Even one is too high if that's a, a family member of a loved one or yourself. So, Dr. Patel, are there any studies that have looked at cardiovascular risk when there is ApoB or LDLP discordance with the LDLC?
1: Great question, and you know, it's funny, there are six this concordant analysis, which all are concordant, and what I mean by that, they all show the same thing. The Cube Cardiovascular Study, Framingham data, Interheart trial, Women's Health Study, Framingham data, MESA data, they all show that even with this concordance, ApoB was superior to L D L C and it was superior to non-HDL in some of those studies. So the point being, we have the same signal in these disconcordant studies, again showing and highlighting ApoB is superior to LDLC. And more importantly, just think about it from a pathophysiology standpoint. When you're talking about ApoB, you're talking about and accounting for every single atherogenic particle in the body. When you're talking about LDLC, you're just talking about LDL. This is the reason why, in the interheart trial, ApoB over ApoA was the strongest predictor of predicting further cardiovascular events. It's when you have the same number or the ratio of bad particles is the same as good particles. ApoB over ApoA1 was the strongest predictor in the interheart trial, again, reiterating the fact that we need to get ApoB low, and when you miss ApoB, you miss residual risk.
0: Very true, and I appreciate, and I'm sure our audience does, you gave us some ways to do that, some additional medications, and of course, targeting that metabolic syndrome um, with lifestyle is very important as well. So, again, thank you so much for this great information, Dr. Patel. I know our audience has gotten so much out of it. and Have I? So thank you.